And I'm going to read this time from Proverbs. We're going to get into uh, why the fear of the Lord is necessary for true knowledge and wisdom. Uh, we're going to get into that today. I've got to finish up on the fear of the Lord and the Word of God, which I began last week, but we'll finish that up. And uh, it turned out very, very interesting, the fear of the Lord, its connection to wisdom. But I'm just going to read from Proverbs 1, verse 7. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then we begin here, uh, finishing up on the fear of the Lord and the Word of God, and of course focusing a lot on, when you study the scripture, it's focused a lot with God's holy law. Now, the holy law reflects God's holiness. The moral law is a reflection of who God is. Now, there are positive moral laws that are universal and they're made by God and they're based on God's authority. But the Ten Commandments are based on who God is, His nature. Those who disregard God's law will receive the curses of the covenant. And that's why you look at the inner cities run by Democrats and they're so disgusting and evil because they're lawless. They're lawless. They believe their ethic is Marxism. Their ethic is whoever has more is the guilty party and whoever has less is the innocent good person. So these people who commit all these crimes, they don't want to charge them, they don't want to put them in jail, and then what happens is everybody has to move out because it's, it, it's very dangerous. The intention of the moral law is to uphold the fear of God among the people. This obviously implies faith in Christ and the Word of God. And we're going to do a section on the fear of the Lord and, of course, Christ. As a result of fearing God, the people study the moral law and strive to put it into practice. Covenant faithfulness. The covenant is like, it's like a marriage covenant. You get married, the bride submits to the bridegroom. Joyfully, happily. As a result of, uh, of fearing God, the people will strive to obey it, the moral law. And we can see in these verses the crucial importance of the inspiration, infallibility, sufficiency, perfection, and authority of Scripture. Satan's first attack in history was against God's word. Because if you can, you know, has God said? Remember what he said to Eve? Has God said? And then he twisted what God said and tried to make it sound unreasonable. And then, has God really said that? Because once people deny the authority of Scripture, anything goes. It's human autonomy. If one's view of the Bible falters, everything will degenerate and fall apart spiritually and morally. Look at the mainline denominations. The PCUSA, the United Methodists, all these groups that adopted modernism and rejected the authority of scripture and accepted secular humanism with religious terminology. They all have sodomite pastors, lesbian pastors. They allow adultery. They don't discipline for adultery and for fornication. They're completely immoral. They're like Canaanites. They're, they're secular humanists. <clears throat> it also reveals the incredible importance and honor that scripture places on the moral law. Now, let's keep this in mind because a lot of people don't understand this. The Ten Commandments, and this is taught by our standards, the Westminster Standards, are a summary of the moral law. Because years ago I refuted some Reformed Presbyterian, I guess from Australia, who read, oh no, the Ten Commandments are the moral law, everything else is not the moral law. Well, that's nonsense. 
any teaching commandment or statute that is moral in content outside of the Ten Commandments applies as well. There are moral laws designed to explicate, flesh out, and explain each commandment. And, and I highly recommend studying the larger Westminster Larger Catechism. And you get to the section on the law of God, and that's precisely what they do. They divide it up into the Ten Commandments, uh, and under each commandment, they take all the related commandments from the moral case laws and the laws outside the Ten Commandments, and then they flesh out each commandment. That's exactly what the early Presbyterians did. They weren't like modern Presbyterians who denied the laws outside of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> In addition, there are moral case laws that teach how to apply these universal moral principles to specific situations in life, and even how they should be applied in civil and judicial situations. Don't, uh, for example, if you have an ox and it gores somebody, if you don't because you don't have a proper fence. If you, you have to, of course, make restitution. But if you don't fix it after you've been warned and it goes out and kills somebody, life for life, you were warned. Well, that can apply to driving, driving around in a car where you know your brakes are bad. You see how you take that moral case law and you can apply it to plug it into all kinds of different situations. If, you know, if, you, if you're a truck driver and you know you got bad brakes and you go out and you kill somebody, you're responsible. Why does the Bible do that? Why does the Bible use moral case laws? It does it because if, if it wanted to regulate everything perfectly, you know, you'd have to have 50 volumes. By having a case law and, and you learn how to apply it, you can, the law can be fairly small, and yet you can apply it to a virtually infinite amount of situations. <clears throat> the judicial laws in the Old Testament that are moral in content are not typical or ceremonial, and thus applied to sojourners or strangers, that is, foreigners who lived within the borders of Israel. Leviticus 18.26. So this idea, oh, well, the, the law is special. It's only for Israel. It has nothing to do with us. It's all, the whole law, everything, is just for Israel. It's complete nonsense. It applied to foreigners. It applied to everybody because it's moral in content. If it's moral in content, it reflects God's nature and character. The Bible teaches that the moral law is perfect and just. And let me just read a couple. <clears throat> Leviticus 19, 15, and 35, Deuteronomy 4, 8, 16, 18, 24, 17, 33, 21, 2 Samuel 8, 15, 2 Chronicles 8, 8, Psalm 119, 102, 117, 121, Isaiah 56, 1, Jeremiah 23, 5, etc., etc. And of course, Romans 7, 12, where Paul's talking about the Old Testament law. He's talking about the moral law. It's holy, just, and good. The dispensational position, which dismisses the whole Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments, or the modern Reformed version of dispensationalism, which finds the moral law only in the Ten Commandments to the exclusion of all moral case laws outside of the Ten Commandments, greatly reduces the ethical footprint of Scripture and thus reduces the application of the fear of God to ecclesiastical and a special, especially civil law orders. How is a country to fear? Now, we, we saw this in a passage we looked at, I think it was last week or the week before, where you have to rule in the fear of God. What does that mean? Rule in the fear of God. That applies to ecclesiastical leaders and civil leaders are supposed to rule in the fear of God. Well, how do you do that? That means you obey Scripture. You learn what, and we saw how the king had to study Scripture and apply it to society. 
He's required to study it every day so he can learn how to apply justice. Justice is what God says justice is in his infallible word. It's not what Karl Marx says. And it amazes me that colleges are still teaching Marx and people are still looking up to Marx when he was proven to be a liar and a fool even when he was still alive. His theories didn't work at all. Therefore, it is far superior to the law codes of the heathen nations around Israel and should, if faithfully followed by Israel, serve it as an example to the pagan nations. Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8. So if it didn't apply to the pagan nations, why is it an example to the pagan nations? Do you understand what I'm saying? The dispensational position, which dismisses the whole Old Testament law, or the modern version, misses the point of the law. And what's amazing is you can read articles about sanctification by some really good like Dutch Reformed people and OPC, PCA people, and they don't even mention the law, which is the code. It's the standard of sanctification. And of course, Rush Dooney, for saying that it's the standard of sanctification, he's talking about the moral law, he's been accused of being a legalist. Well, if it's not God's standard, whose standard is it? Who makes the rules? If God doesn't make the rules, do you make the rules? Do you look to natural law? That's what they're, that's what they're teaching at the seminary uh, Westminster West. I, I wrote a whole book against it on reformonline.com, Van Drunen. No, no, we don't look to biblical law, we look to natural law. Well, natural law to the sodomite, and natural law to the secular humanist, and natural law to a Roman Catholic, and natural law to a Calvinist are going to be very different things. The homosexual looks at nature, and he sees that monkeys engage in sodomy and all kinds of crazy things, and other animals engage in homosexual relationships, and says, see, it's perfectly natural. But, of course, they don't understand we're in a fallen order now. You can't look to nature as your guide to ethics. If men are not carefully searching out God's moral law and carefully applying them to culture and society, the result will be more human autonomy and ethics. The result of such thinking has led very conservative Presbyterians in Scotland, the Free Church, now, the Free Church nowadays, they rejected uh, the instruments position. They, they, I think they've rejected exclusive psalmody. They're a declining denomination. They're going backwards. The Free Church, Free Church continuing is the group that is being much more faithful and have split. Advocating status redistribution programs, welfare programs, and health care programs in the name of Christian love even though a biblical analysis reveals that such programs are based on state theft and covetousness. They're based on theft. If you work harder, if you, if you go get educated and you work harder and you make more money, do I have the right to steal from you to give to somebody who didn't go to college and sits around and smokes weed and watches a lot of television, is lazy? Do I have that right? No, that, that's called theft. Well, why does the state have that right? What gives the state the right to violate God's Ten Commandments? It doesn't have that right. So anybody who holds that position, welfare statism, is advocating theft and is denying the Ten Commandments and is breaking the covenant. The Bible teaches private charity. Now, if there's a just war and the state uh, gets a bunch of treasure 
because they defeat somebody who attacked them and they get a bunch of gold and silver and the state wants to donate a bunch of money to the church and be a nursing mother to the church, that's fine. They get that money lawfully. But the state does not have the right to steal from Peter to pay Paul. That's theft. In addition, they destroy the biblical idea of the deserving poor and, of course, private charity. In the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead, not because they uh, refused to give all their money. They were struck dead because they lied about it. And Peter says, you didn't have to give. It's voluntary. Private charity is voluntary. They didn't have to give, but they lied. And that, that, the bit we always hear from socialists, how in the book of Acts, they had all things in common in the Jerusalem church. <clears throat> and they sold their property and they had everything in common. You know why? Because God told them they were going to destroy the city within one generation. So if you own property in Jerusalem, uh, the wise thing to do is get rid of it. If a nation is to truly fear God, it can only do so by strictly implementing and enforcing a biblical law order. A nation that hates God's law and replaces it with humanistic, immoral laws is a nation that hates God and is ripe for judgment. And of course, there is self-judgment. The Democrats, who follow a Marxist philosophy, who control the big cities, who have taken Marxist philosophy and applied it to racism and talk about white privilege and all this nonsense, they're not locking up criminals. And what's happening is, is people are fleeing the cities. The big cities, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. People are fleeing the cities. Productive people, lawful people. Because it's just so lawless and so terrible and the taxes are so high, you'd be a fool to stay there. That's a self-induced curse, but then there's curses from God. You know, things like 9-11 or the COVID thing, which are just a foretaste of what's coming. When they rejected the Bible in Western civilization and apostatized in the 1920s uh, and the late 1800s and the early 20th century, we got World War I and World War II. So these things are very important. While keeping the law is never equated with earning salvation in Scripture, for the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to the need of faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice to have peace and favor with God. <clears throat> Those who disregard the law as a means of sanctification and covenantal obedience, being faithful to, you're the bride, being faithful to God, they reveal that they do not have faith and they do not fear God. Their behavior reveals apostasy and contempt for God's holiness. By the rejection of the moral law, they are guilty of spiritual adultery, violating their covenant vows, and thus must endure the curses of the covenant. And there's large sections in Leviticus and Deuteronomy talking about the blessings of covenant keeping, the curses of covenant breaking. They're very real, and they still apply. Now, I know people, most Christians today deny that they apply today, but they still apply today. They still apply today. The fear of the Lord brings great blessings, but the rejection of the fear of God leads to great judgments against sin. 
You know, don't get this idea that the fact that judgment isn't falling right this minute, perhaps, that God doesn't still honor his law. He does. We have seen that the fear of the Lord is intimately connected to how we are to approach God in worship and how one is to live. Sanctification or separation unto holy thrice God. That's what sanctification means. It refers to separation. It reveals that those who do not take biblical worship seriously and who do not live consistently and habitually in accord with God's revealed moral law, at best, have a very defective, highly compromised fear of Yahweh, or at worst, are apostate and not Christians at all. And we can say that about antinomians. We can say that about modernists or liberals. God says that homosexuality is an abomination, and that the person who commits homosexuality must be put to death. Dying, he must die. It's a curse. He calls it, it's an abomination. When you have homosexual marriage and you have homosexual priests and lesbians, what do you think God thinks about those denominations? He hates them. And thank God they're, they're shrinking rapidly. We have also noted that unbelievers must fear God because he is the creator and sovereign Lord over his creation. Everyone owes their existence to God and thus should honor him as the only true and living God. Christians, of course, have an additional reason. The covenant. We're his covenant people. We're in a saving relationship with God. We're part of his family. We have covenantal obligations as God's special children and as God's bride. And that's why if you study the Old Testament, when Israel goes off the deep end and gets into idolatry and all this sexual immorality and all these perverted things, God compares it to adultery over and over and over again. We're in a loving covenant relationship that redemption has established. For the Christian community, any sanctions for corruption and disobedience are covenant sanctions. But this additional responsibility does not mean that Yahweh accepts sin and lawlessness among unbelievers. I'll never forget, after 9-11, they had an ecumenical service in Washington with George W. Bush. And Billy Graham spoke. And whenever he appealed to the Bible, he says, this applies to you Christians here. It doesn't apply to you, others, other religions here. And he was talking about ethical things and stuff. Totally heretical. Billy Graham was a false prophet. They will be judged for their wickedness because they are God's creatures. They are responsible to God who created them. God destroyed, destroyed the whole human race except Noah and his family. Because, quote, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the hearts was only evil continually, Genesis 6.5. The earth and all flesh was totally corrupt, Genesis 6.12. And filled with unlawful violence, Genesis 6.13. It was like South Chicago. It was like the gangs in South Central L.A. That's what society was like. It was like the American Indians. People worship the Indians today. Talk about how great they are. And they, oh, they love nature. They were so good to nature. No, they were they, it was a, they were basically a bunch of vicious gangs murdering and killing each other and taking their women, 
and slaughtering each other. They were evil. They were totally evil, the Comanches and the Apaches. There was one fairly peaceful tribe in, I think, Minnesota that Lewis and Clark ran into on the way to Oregon. And when they came back, they were all dead. They had been killed by another tribe. They were wiped out. They kill everybody. They take the women. They take the babies. All the males are tortured to death and scalped. Yeah, wonderful community. <clears throat> Yahweh slaughtered the inhabitants of Canaan with a sword. Seven whole pagan nations, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 2, Leviticus 18, the book of Joshua, because of their idolatry. Leviticus 18, 21, and gross sexual immorality, especially sexual perversions. Incest, Leviticus 18, 6 to 18, adultery, Leviticus 18, 20, homosexuality, Leviticus 18, 22, bestiality, Leviticus 18, 23. God tells them, I'm destroying these, now God gave them 400 years to repent, that's a long time. But God says, I'm destroying these seven nations because of these immoral positions and activities. And if you do what they're doing, I'm going to destroy you too, for the same reason. The Lamb's going to vomit you out. So if you think there's no consequence, oh, we're a, we're a pluralistic society and we have open idolatry and sodomite bars and gay parades. If you think God, God's going to overlook that, you've got something coming. Their habitual immorality was an abomination in God's sight, and it defiled the land. Therefore the Lord destroyed them. They were placed under a special curse. The cherim principle, the ban. Dying they must die. God applies the death penalty to their society. And of course, Yahweh promised Israel that if they followed the heathen abominations, he would destroy them also. Leviticus 18.29 now, Yahweh reminded Israel that he gave them the promised land, not because they were better than anyone else. Oh, look how ethical and nice you are. I'm going to give you this land. No. But because of his own sovereign good pleasure, he determined, determined to save them and make them a special people. Deuteronomy 9, 4-6. And we saw how bad they were when they left Egypt. The Lord did not choose Israel because of their righteousness, for we know that Israel was a stiff-necked, rebellious people. But once he redeemed them, he called them to be holy. That is a separate, purified, ethical, law-abiding people. They were not to intermarry, imitate, or syncretize with their pagan neighbors. And if you look at Genesis and you look at uh, the Old Testament, what led to the destruction of the flood was the sons of God intermarried, the followers of Yahweh, their children, intermarried with the pagans. And they became pagan. And that destroyed the whole world. Israel. They intermarried with the pagans around them. And that destroyed Israel. The north was completely wiped out in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. The south was conquered in 587 B.C. by Babylon. Now, God had mercy for the sake of the covenant with David, and he had to bring the Messiah forth. <clears throat> so that is what it means to fear God in practice. 
So when you see these black ministers and these black churches, not all of them, but most of them, 90% of them, support the Democrats and support Joe Biden and support abortion on demand and support state theft for welfare programs and support the racism advocated by the Democratic Party and support uh, homosexuality. Those churches are false churches. They're antichrist churches. Now, there's a lot of problems with the Republican Party, especially today. I don't like Trump at all, and I don't like populism. I don't understand why, you know, these Trump followers think that Russia is great when they're a bunch of murderers and rapists. But the Democratic Party is clearly satanic to the core. And if you haven't heard it, listen to my, I have a sermon on Sermon Audio and also YouTube on, uh, is the Democratic Party satanic? Listen to it, where I explain why. <clears throat> the moral case laws within the judicial code, as noted, were not redemptive, but rather preservative of the covenant. Okay, Christians are got to have a better view of God's law. The praise for the law of God in, in the book of Psalms, and in the Proverbs, and in the prophets, is astounding. And for, for Christians to have this negative view of God's law, yeah, we're not saved by the law. The Bible never taught that. But once you're saved, you better obey the law. They were designed to keep the people faithful to the covenant so they would not be a, judged and punished by God. For more minor infractions, there was repentance and restitution. You steal something, you have to give it back, and then you have to pay extra. You make restitution, and you publicly repent. And then you're restored to the covenant community. The offender must submit to the decision of the court and fulfill the biblical penalty before being reinstated to the covenant community. Same thing in church discipline today. Somebody commits a sin, and if they repent, they have to be forgiven and received back into the community, and people can't treat them like dirt. By fulfilling the requirement of the law, the community was healed. Crime was restrained, and the judgment of God avoided. For serious crimes, idolatry, enticement to idolatry, witchcraft, homosexuality, adultery, murder, incorrigible delinquency, and by the Bible, that, that doesn't mean talking back to your mom and dad. That means these, these were basically criminals, professional criminals, habitual, unrepentant offenders. The Bible requires a death penalty so that the enemies of the covenant commun communion with Yahweh and, and the holy community are purged from society. Now, adultery is the only thing I mentioned in there. Adultery <clears throat> was something where the most... The most uh, harsh penalty allowed was death. But if the man can't, let's say the wife commits adultery with a man, and they're caught, and there's witnesses, and he's convicted, uh, the husband of the wife, uh, if the guy apologizes and says, look, I'll, I'll pay you $100,000, and you can have half my land, whatever, you don't have to put him to death. There's penalties lesser than death for adultery, but that's the only one. Fornication, if you fornication, you have to pay the equivalent of about a year's wages, and then you're forced to marry her and you're never allowed to get a divorce. That would really cut back on fornication, wouldn't it? You meet some slut in a bar, 
well, I don't want to be with her the rest of my life. The lost purpose is for a healthy, godly society. So it seeks to restore and heal minor offenders who repent. But those who do not fear God at all and live to destroy a godly social order, there is capital punishment. Capital punishment for those things that God says it applies to is righteous. It is good. It is holy. It helps instill the fear of God into a society. They must be removed from a Christian society to avoid the spread of evil, protect families from crime, and protect society from the judgment of God. There's this thing called the judgment of God. Now, according to statistics, I saw this on the internet, it's pretty funny. The, uh, what's the generation of people born right after World War II to 56, right in that area? 57. Or 1960. That's the... Uh, the baby boomers. 4% of baby boomers in the United States claim to be homosexual or bisexual. 4%. The generation after that, it's like 10 per, 8% or something. Do you know what it is among people born in the last 15 years or so? It's in the 20s. Like 28%. Some ridiculously high number. Why is that? Because it's hip. It's popular now to be a sodomite or to be a lesbian, or to be bisexual. It's a learned, it's not something you're born with. It's a learned experience, and people are learning to be more evil. It's a perversion. But if you had a Christian society where people were not allowed to publicly advocate it and praise it, and people who were caught in the act by witnesses were put to death, believe me, it would be less than 4%. Because it's a learned experience. It's a sin. The fear of God commands the supremacy of the written and scripturated word of God and requires a biblical law order. The men, the man who mocks a Christian law order, rejects the law of God, or seeks to overthrow it must be removed from a Christian society, or else that society will eventually turn to false gods. Deuteronomy 17, 12 to 13. So in our day, when conservative Presbyterians, the OPC, the PCA, the RPCNA, the modern RPCNA, not the old one, advocates pluralism and praises pluralism, which is open idolatry. They're denying the covenant law. And once we mentioned this, I think, last week, how people have a tendency to focus on things that apply to humans. You know, it's obviously wrong to steal or murder somebody. But the sins against God, oh, they're okay. We'll ignore those. You want to set up a statue to Krishna and worships Krishna, or you want to set up an idol of the Virgin Mary in the park, no problem. Go ahead. Well, it is a big problem. The fear of the Lord is used as a synonym for God's law, or more specifically, the purifying and sanctifying effect of the law on the soul, which, of course, is always in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, in Galatians and other places, it talks about walking in the Spirit. You know, we're not saved by the law, but you do have to walk in the Spirit. What does walking in the Spirit mean? 
Does it mean you get mystical impressions from the spirit and you just obey those mystical or the spirit talks to you directly? No. The spirit always works in conjunction with the word of God. You study the Bible and you read something and the spirit convicts you of sin and you go, wow, I need to obey this. I'm not doing a good job here. That's what, the, that's, that's what it means to walk in the spirit. It means to obey the word of God. In Psalm 19, 7 and 9, we read, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So what do we see here? And you could go on, read the whole psalm. The law is needed for a wholesome reverence of the lawgiver. Like I said, you want to learn about God? Study his law. It's a reflection of his moral character. You want to understand the holiness of God? <clears throat> In that ethical sense, study the moral law. The ancient Greeks viewed moral laws as abstractions that existed outside of man and their concept of God, or gods, in the realm of ideals. That was their way of trying to have absolutes in a world of, um, in their version of the world, which was not really created. It was really kind of an evolving thing. Modern secular humanists view morals as purely positivistic, that they're completely just made up by men. They're arbitrary. They're subjective determinations of man. Why do you think the Democrats want to control the Supreme Court? Because the Supreme Court just arbitrarily out of thin air. Yeah, homosexual marriage. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's legal now. You want to murder your baby? Ah, oh, go ahead. It's legal. Oh, homosexuality and sodomy and fisting and gerbils? Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. It's legal. And we should have parades praising it. No, that's positivism. It's moral because we say it's moral. It's, it's not based on the word of God at all. It's based on pure subjectivism. It's arbitrary. That is why they view morality as situational, evolving, not fixed, not absolute, not unchanging. We live in an evolving universe of chance. Well, ethics are evolving too, because we're still evolving. The Bible emphasizes that God's moral law is not arbitrary or some abstraction. It is personal. It comes from a personal God. It's covenantal. And it comes from a loving, infinite, personal God. Submission to God involves submission to His law. Fearing God involves loving His law and obeying it, putting it into practice. The love of Yahweh cannot be divorced from a love of God's law. So people, oh, I love God's law. And they're not committing adultery or fornicating or taking drugs or being a drunkard or whatever. Nonsense. It's like these guys. You meet these guys. Oh, I love my wife so much. And they've got mistresses and they're committing adultery on a habitual basis. They're unfaithful to their wives. They treat their wives like dirt. They're out messing around. No, you don't love your wife. You're scum. You're evil. Same thing with God. 
Oh, I love you, Lord, but I'm not going to obey your law. You're a liar. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7? On that day, men will come to me say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. And then what's the basis for him saying, I never knew you? You practice lawlessness. You break the covenant. The law of God is free from injustice, error, sin, and evil. It enlightens the eyes and imparts true wisdom. How do men show that they have a love and reverence for the true and living God? They must have a love and respect for God's moral law. The law reveals Yahweh and it binds us to purity, covenant obedience, reverence, as well as holiness in heart and in worship. What do you think it's praised so much? Psalm 19 is the longest psalm there. It's about God's law. It's the longest psalm in the Psalter. And it's not the only psalm. There's many psalms that praise the law. It reveals truth without any mixture of error, without any injustice, without any fiction, falsehood, or deceit. It is perfect, more precious than fine gold. It is to be desired more than fine gold, Psalm 19.10. For only it imparts true wisdom and knowledge. It is the way to learn the fear of the Lord. Here's what Calvin says. And we're talking, he's talking about Psalm 19. The sense is that we do not esteem the law as it deserves if we do not prefer it to all the riches of the whole world. That's Calvin. That which teaches us about God's will and how we should fear him must be more precious to us than riches, worldly honor, or sinful lusts. And all these guys, you know, I've debated these guys over the years. Oh, they, oh, you're terrible. You're a theonomist. You believe in God's law outside the Ten Commandments. And you're like, oh, you're terrible. You're dangerous. I knew this pastor. He would praise me to my face. But then in his church, he would, oh, no, don't sell Brian's books on the church table. He's a theonomist. He believes in the laws outside the Ten Commandments. What nonsense. It teaches about God's will. So it should be, according to the Bible itself, more precious to us than the purest of gold, the greatest of riches, diamonds, rubies. The practical effect of the law when accompanied by the Spirit's power is to turn us away from ourselves toward the true and living God through Jesus Christ. It reveals all of man's autonomous reasonings, philosophies, and priorities to be nothing but blind, foolish trash. The Holy Spirit uses it to sanctify our hearts and progressively destroy our love of sin. I remember when I was first a professing Christian, I had read Hal Lindsey. This is back in the 70s. I read Hal Lindsey's books, The Great Lake, Planet Earth, and Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, and all this pretty garbagey books. But And then I, I got involved in one of those big mega charismatic churches where the pastor's up there singing songs and cracking jokes and and then they have an altar call, and he's up there crying. Won't you come forward? Won't you let God save you? And um, I was still smoking dope. I'd smoke pot on the way to church. I was still going out with girls. I didn't know anything about the law until I became reformed. Obedience to the moral law is the key to fearing the Lord. 
learning the law and obeying it with a pure heart, out of a sincere heart, is the way to learn to fear the Lord. A study of the Old Testament moral laws are very neglected to the game because the idea that all of the Old Testament laws were only for Israel and therefore were abrogated with the coming of Christ. But Jesus made it crystal clear that he did not come to annul, annul destroy, or abrogate the moral law, but to establish it. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Okay, this is you. you, you you've probably heard it before. Oh, the, the Pharisees were super righteous. And the, the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they weren't godly. They were super godly. The problem with the Pharisees was is that they tried to be saved through keeping the law. That is a lie. They were wicked. They weren't godly. They were committing adultery. The, the priests and the people who ran the temple were stealing. They, they had money changers. They weren't godly. They were hypocrites. Christ came to establish the law because we can only understand the law and obey it properly if we're saved by Jesus and we have the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be convicted of sin. You're just going to keep going out and fornicating and snorting coke and doing whatever. The Christian is not under the curse of the law because our Redeemer endured the curse of the law in our place. Very clearly said in Galatians 3.13 and other places. Moreover, believers are not under the law as a covenant of works or obligation to earn eternal life because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in our stead and imputes his perfect righteousness to believers. Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We don't earn salvation. We don't merit anything. And as Jesus himself said in Luke 10, 17, 10, all of our righteousness, all of your righteousness is, is, is tainted with sin. None of it's acceptable. And Paul makes that clear also in Philippians chapter 9. Excuse me, Philippians chapter 3. I regard, here's Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, dedicated to the minutia of the law, and he says, I regard all of my so-called, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, all my so-called good works and righteousness as filthy rags in God's sight, as a pile of stinking trash, that I may own Christ and his righteousness, which Luther called an alien righteousness. It's not your own. It belongs to another Christ. And it's imputed. It's reckoned to your account. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Like I said, Paul says he regarded all his good works and righteousness as nothing but worthless trash that by faith he may possess the perfect saving righteousness of Christ, Philippians 3, 4 to 11. In addition, it is our Lord's perfect salvation that resulted in his exaltation to God's right hand. Matthew 28, 18 following, Acts 1, 5, Acts 2, 1 to 4, and 33 to 36. Uh, see Psalm 2, 7 to 8, Psalm 110, 1 to 7. Therefore, he has the power and authority as the resurrected theanthropic mediator to send his Holy Spirit to his people's hearts, regenerating them and progressively sanctifying them over time. And Hebrews talks about this. It's a better covenant. Why? Because there's a, first of all, we have a completed revelation about Christ. They had types. We have, the, we have the reality. But also because there's a greater refusion of the Holy Spirit. We can't obey without the Spirit. And that doesn't earn anything. Now, God has rewards of grace. It talks about it in Corinthians. 
about being rewarded on the day of judgment for your good works done for Christ. But those are rewards of grace because we, we don't really earn anything. We don't deserve anything. Everything's tainted with sin. Christ's redemptive work is the source, efficacy, power, and enabler of regeneration and sanctification. But the word of God and the moral law contains the standard for sanctification. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the word to convert the soul and sanctify believers. Therefore, the Old Testament's great praise of God's moral law as the way to learn wisdom and the fear of the Lord applies to every Christian as much as it did for Old Testament Israel. We should heed the inspired words of David who wrote this, Psalm 34, 11 to 14. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Sounds pretty important, doesn't it? I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Same thing in Ecclesiastes after all those, you know, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. What's the lesson? Fear God and obey his commandments. We must never fear those who hate God's word and his moral law for they will receive their due. Note the word of the Lord through Israel, Isaiah 66, 5 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brethren who hate you, who cast you out, of my, out for my namesake. They shall be ashamed. A voice in the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Fear the Lord. Study his law, his moral law. Obey his commandments. Keep the covenant. That's how you fear the Lord. And if phony Christians or Christians who are ignorant hate you and society hates you, so be it. God will take care of them. Don't worry about them. You do your job. You obey. You fear the Lord. You obey the law. And then we come to a really important topic. And I'm, should I, how much time do I have? Yeah, I might stop here, but... Um, the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And this is a very helpful. The reverential awe or fear of the true and living God is necessary, not only for a love of the law, covenant faithfulness, and biblical worship, but also for true knowledge and wisdom. You're all, oh, come on, that's, that's saying an awful lot. As Van Til would say, the ontological trinity is the foundation of all predication. And we'll, we'll go into detail why. We're going to go into detail next week, Lord willing. We'll, we'll go, I have a very lengthy section on this. And this point is emphasized by Scripture in Proverbs 1, 7. We read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's a pretty amazing statement. If you don't have faith in Christ and you don't know the true and living God, you cannot know anything as you ought to. And you cannot, and, you know, the study of epistemology, 
uh, I'll just make some comments because I really going to I want to cover this all next week. <clears throat> uh, and Van Til's really good about this. Your concept of metaphysics, what exists, affects your epistemology or theory of knowledge. And we'll get into this. If you believe that we evolved from chance, matter randomly floating in the void, that evolved itself somehow into galaxies and planets and suns and stars and, and then bacteria and algae and then that, that formed into monkeys and man and all that, which is absolute nonsense, absolutely impossible. If you know anything about DNA and how complex it is, it, that's just, it's like saying, oh, I found a, a nuclear submarine on the beach. Uh, it evolved. It must have come here by chance. But, but it took billions of years to get to become a nuclear submarine. It's just complete and utter nonsense. But people believe this because they're taught this from their youth in school. Because why is evolution so popular? Why is it taught everywhere? Because the only alternative is creation by an infinite personal God. But if you believe that we evolved from chance, you can't really know any fact correctly. Now, you can be inconsistent. You can still from the Christian world and life view. But you can't, and we'll go into detail why next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy law. We thank you for your infallible word. We thank you for your dear son, Jesus Christ, and his precious salvation, who had victory over sin and death and hell and ascended on high and sent us the Holy Spirit so we could understand these things and be regenerate and believe in you and have your perfect righteousness in our possession, re removing our guilt and then imputing your righteousness to our account. We thank you for that, Lord. Now cause us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to love your law, to love your holy word, to study it, to learn it, to apply it, so that we can be covenantally faithful. And forgive us, Lord, for we fall short every day in many things. So help us to be obedient. Help us to obey your law. And help us to work for godly dominion in our wicked, degenerate society. In Jesus' name, 